response to the climate and ecological crisis requires heaps of innovation. We need to transform entire industries, reskill the workforce, and create new jobs. That's one huge challenge, but one giant opportunity. But how does this affect you and your sector? Content with Purpose partners with professional member associations and trade bodies to delve into the future of their industries, asking the tough questions and showcasing the innovation propelling our net zero ambitions. Leading the way to a world beyond waste, a podcast series produced by Content with Purpose in partnership with the Chartered Institution of Wastes Management. And here's our host, Mark Shaler. Hello, and welcome to Leading the Way to a World Beyond Waste the CIWM and Content with Purpose podcast series, in which we explore the resources and waste sector's role in the transition to a low-carbon, resource-efficient, circular, hopefully better, and maybe even fairer economy. Today, we're going to focus on technology, and we're also going to focus on business models, amongst other things. I'm Mark Shaler, and for over 30 years, I've been helping companies and organizations to understand what sustainability means to them helping them develop strategies that truly embrace the transformative opportunities that come with our move to net zero. My general view in life is that whilst business has created many of the world's problems, it's probably the only thing that can solve them. And this sector's role in that is absolutely pivotal. With this podcast series and through the people we meet, I want to know what changes are coming for the waste management industry, the resources industry, and as a result of our transition to a low carbon economy, and what all this means to those that work in the sector. And to help answer these questions, I'm joined by Sophie Walker, CEO of Disposal. Sophie, as a founder of a tech company that helps waste management companies to manage their waste compliance and operations, can you give us a sense of the appetite for innovation within the sector? And maybe a little bit about what you do just to start off. Thanks, Mark. Um, It's such an exciting time in the industry. I think there's so much happening. And I'm really seeing, I think, a growing appetite for innovation amongst, um, especially the larger organisations, waste management companies, I think, who, you know, are installing things like Grey Parrot and Recyclai sort of automated um, computer vision technology into their plants to kind of improve sorting and... um, identification of materials flowing through MRFs. I think that's really exciting and there's lots happening there. From the waste management kind of tech side of things, we tend to focus more at the smaller smaller companies. Uh, I think it's fair to say that they're a little bit uh, more old school and a little bit more reticent of, of, of technology and kind of innovation. And so it, it can definitely be a bit more of a, of a challenge there. But, um, but I think one that people are kind of becoming more um, open to and understanding the, the value in. I do think that across the board, as we're sort of seeing more data being available and more kind of analysis being done on that data, I think we're seeing a sort of fear of finding out, um, as in sometimes, and this isn't just from our side of, to do with compliance, but talking to other other waste management companies um, and other tech providers to different waste management companies, I think there's a, a slight nervousness about what the data will actually show. So that's, I, I'm kind of keen to see how that plays out. I'm curious about how that will play out over the coming years. Sophie, that, that's akin to not looking in your bank account in case you haven't got anything in there, isn't it? That data is really important. Where does that fear of finding out, where does it begin and how do we solve it? Oh, if I knew how to solve it, I'd probably be a much richer person. Um, I, I think you're right. It's really, really key. And it is 
very akin to just not wanting to look in the bank account. Honestly, I think there's something here around people not wanting to be seen as being the outlier. And I think we need the industry to almost have a kind of amnesty of of truth and reconciliation uh, to say that how we've done this in the past and the information that we've been able to provide people in the past needs to be kind of, we need to draw a line over it and go forward with this more accurate, more granular, more detailed information that we're now available to access and accept that what has been said and promoted and kind of, you know, produced previously, maybe we should just say that was the best we could do then <laughs> and we're going to move forward. Because I think that, you know, it spans everything. We found that it spans everything from the sort of compliance side of things of not really wanting to get to the bottom of people's waste supply chains and understanding exactly where things go through to people not really wanting to know exactly what's happening in their MRFs and things because they're like, well, no, that's not that's not how we think this works. Uh, you know, all of our experience says it's like this. I, I almost feel like, yeah, we need to kind of agree that like the way it's been in the past, that was the best we could, you know, charitably, let's say that's the best that we could manage. And let's move forward with a kind of a new version of what we're going to aim for as being true and accurate. But I think that requires a real understanding of data. And I think that there's still a data immaturity in the sector, a lack of data infrastructure. And that's something that we're sort of trying to address. Now, it's really interesting, though, because that new start, that clean sheet, aligns with better availability of data and technology, but also a kind of deeper aspiration within your customer base to know more or, or to, to do more, actually. And you can't do if you, if you don't know. Before we move on, I'm really interested in, in the kind of size of customer that you've got. Are we talking big companies? Are we talking little companies? Where do you specialise? Uh, we rather idiotically, from a business perspective, don't. Um, so we, uh, from a waste management side of things, we're mostly at the smaller end, like I said. So um, our largest customer is a like an independent national waste organisation that has about 80 members of staff. But then on the on, we also have a product that's aimed at waste producers. So it's helping waste producers better understand the waste they produce and the compliance around it. And so on that side, um, we're working with people like the largest NHS trust in the country, uh, which is Manchester. So there's a bit of a range of, of sizes. So we work with people who you know have one site and have very minimal waste and then right up to NHS trusts. Um, and then we've got a big project all around packaging at the moment. And so in that, it's the whole gamut of anyone in the packaging supply chain or packaging ecosystem, I should say. So it's a real, it's a real range. I've worked with the Manchester Trust as well. It's, it's huge, absolutely colossal. Leading the way to a world beyond waste. This episode is sponsored by Xworks Tech, Recycleye, and Q Technology and Circular Fuels. Xworks is an end-to-end data platform that facilitates trading that's compliant with the latest mandatory UK and EU regulations digital tracking and product passports for waste and post-consumer commodities. Recycleye is a groundbreaking technology company bringing advanced machine learning, computer vision and robotics to the global waste management industry. Q Technology and Circular Fuels Limited are reinventing waste to energy to achieve net zero ambitions in harder to abate areas such as off-grid energy, industrial fuels and chemicals and transport. You can learn more about their work on our digital series website, worldbeyondwaste.com. .ciwm.co.uk Leading the way to a world beyond waste. I'm also joined today, and I'm really excited, um, by Professor David Hughes. David is Head of the Circular Economy and Recycling Innovation Centre, CERIC, at Teesside University. David, 
I guess the concept and the idea fades in terms of new products, new services, new business models is the easy bit. My guess is getting these ideas through to market. So from concept through to customer is, is, is the challenging bit. How do we ensure that we get this innovation into the marketplace? Actually, I'm not always sure that developing the concept is the easiest bit. To develop the concept, you've got to really understand the problem. And as Sophie's already alluded to, sometimes that problem is not clear. You know, I've worked on lots of projects, big and small, where, you know, you think you know what the problem is, but when you really get into it, it's, you know, you're working with such average data that actually there's so much variability in there that when you try and do something, it is really not that easy. And, you know, really understanding the problem as it actually is, is, is difficult enough for, you know, those working in the waste and, and resource management sector. But for those outside in academia and in industry, I'm fortunate enough to, to split my time between industrial roles and academic time. If, if you're not hands-on with that material, that waste stream, that data stream, actually really understanding the core problem, being able to reduce it down to its simplest part, is actually really hard. And particularly today, most problems now are multidisciplinary. You know, it's, it's a legal, it's a techno-legal, it's a financial techno-legal problem that doesn't cross borders very well, that, you know, that you can't export necessarily very easily with a waste stream that's inconsistent and incomplete data. But, you know, you need data scientists to feed into to control your input waste stream, you know. And so I, actually, I think getting that concept right and it being a really true representation of reality is actually quite challenging. Uh, and a lot of my time goes into doing exactly that, really trying to understand the commercial drivers, the technical opportunities that technologies provide, you know, the, the way they can all fit together in a commercial way, but also in a sustainable way, how you manage those two things, which are sometimes hugely complementary and sometimes, frankly, a tension that you have to manage. And so actually, I think getting that concept right is is the first part of the challenge. But you're, you're right. Technically, often developing the solution is the easiest part. You know, often once you really understand the problem, developing technical solutions, be they digital solutions or chemical solutions, mechanical solutions, whatever they may be, is slightly academic. But I, I do think that then to go beyond that, it becomes more complicated again, because just because you can do something doesn't mean you can make it commercially or regulatory viable. And so the key for me is it's collaboration between stakeholders. And that's not just, you know, business stakeholders, that's governments, research institutions, civil organizations, and are raising the awareness for that need of innovation. And I have to say, you know, we've got lots of projects with uh, bodies like Innovate UK and charitable bodies who do a great job of facilitating that and identifying and communicating what those challenges are and then looking to de-risk the collaboration to solve those. But I, I think there's always more we can do then. I think that's really the key to get the innovation further into the marketplace is getting more people with a better understanding of the challenges and getting the right brains from multidisciplinary teams to look at the problem. It's really interesting to hear you speak, David. So about 13, 12 years ago, um, I ran a project with uh, Sophie Thomas uh, called The Great Recovery uh, with the RSA. And that was, the, that was the very aim, was to pull all of these different problem holders and solution finders into one room, have a conversation, and, and move things forward. And that was pretty groundbreaking 20, 10, 11 years ago. Um, but it's still not been solved. You know, we're still literally in exactly that same position. And, and I'm really interested in how we can 
how we can move beyond that. Because you're right, you can't develop a, a, a solution or, a, or, an, or have an innovation. And all creativity is, is imagining a world that hasn't arrived yet. Right? We can't do that until we can map the world that we have already we need to move away from. Uh, I think that's really interesting. And, and I'm interested in how you use data to do this, whether, whether you, because data is great, but it's already history. I'm really interested in insight. How, how do we move from data into insight? How do we play soccer where the ball is going to be rather than where the ball is? Yeah, so some of my time is spent in a business called Materials Evolution. And Materials Evolution is a really exciting uh, startup here in the UK. They've got an office here in Teesside. Materials Evolution develops sustainable cements. Their main product is about 85% less embodied CO2 than traditional ordinary Portland cement. What's interesting, though, is, is their feedstock, because their feedstock isn't traditional cement resources. It's historic wastes, historic steel waste, mine tailing wastes, things like that. And, and the, the, the thing that they're seeing different is these old legacy materials, seeing those as feedstocks, but then take a specific site that I can almost see out of the window here, you know, millions of tons of steel waste, historic steel waste here in the Teesside region. But if you take boreholes down here, we've got boreholes, it, it's inconsistent from different phases of the plant, different layers of deposition, different amounts of weathering. Chemically, it's quite interesting, but it's not the same. And so there's a whole number of points of data. So the first thing we've done is we've done this mapping exercise in a project called Mevacreep, where we've looked to see, well, where are these available resources? Historic steel wastes, mine tailing wastes, where are they? Who owns them? What's the volumes to understand the commercial proposition? A big macro scale based on waste codes. Then we're looking at you know, environment agency and other sampling data from those sites to look at the, the general chemistry. You know, what's that general chemistry? And then we've got a map of that that sort of maps that, you know, are these the right sort of chemistries? And then when we identify relevant chemistries, we're going into more detail to look at the variability. And we're moving into a point where as we take those materials in to a process, we will also have to monitor them real time to adjust process parameters as that feedstock comes in. You know, whatever that waste-based feedstock might be, adjusting uh, those parameters on the fly. So we've got this big macro model of available feedstocks that's a data repository, but then you're zooming in and zooming in again and all the way down to the real time, using that data to inform mixed design, first of all in the pre-planning sort of risk mitigation stage, and then again in real time to make sure that you're producing a consistent product from an inconsistent feedstock. And so, you know, data there, you can start with pretty simple learning models. We're using a technique called principal component analysis that helps to look for statistically significant trends. Then we can move that into mixed design tools and then all the way into artificial neural networks where we're starting to really understand how those different variables all link together across the, the numeral permutations within these feedstocks and what that's going to do. So there's no question that, you know, this AI revolution that we're living through at the moment is changing the game because it's reducing what would be thousands and thousands of repetitions of tests. And even then, you know, probably having to massively underspec a product just to, you know, have a good safety margin to a point where we can control it and we can control it with confidence. And that's the difference. You know, the value add is confidence, not product, really. And it's really interesting, you know, you're, you're, you're taking your feedstock in and you're changing your your process and your blend in order to make sure you can hit the target output. But that's amazing. I love it. What I'm really interested in is that combination of atoms that we've got in terms of raw materials coming in. 
how does that match the demand and the shape of atoms and chemistry for the feedstock as it comes through and goes back into industry? Because if we can do all we want over here in terms of supply side, if the demand side's not right, we don't have a business. How are you bridging those two things? Yeah, I mean, you could imagine that in, within the sort of sustainable cement sector, the, the pull is humongous right now. Cement is a, a key contributor uh, to global CO2, estimated around 7% of global CO2. But it's not just that. The security of a lot of the things that we've used to make cement sustainable over the years is, is drying up. You know, we've been using something called fly ash. It comes from coal from our st- power stations. Not a lot of it about right now. The next material that lots of people use is GGBS, ground granulated blast furnace slag. Well, we've just recently heard we're closing a few more in the UK. So there's less of that about. You know, we're changing the way we make steel. So no one can afford to keep doing it the same way. We've got to innovate because those feedstocks are changing and the feedstocks that are coming in after them aren't the same. But that's also opened up a great discussion around uh, what we've got the flex standards, which are you know different regulatory standards to enable this emerging classification of cements, alkali-activated cements, um, geopolymers, things like that, alternative approaches to making cementitious materials. And that's been key, you know, and so that government drive to, you know, change the way we perceive construction materials is, is a key enabler to us being able to really take wastes and transform them into something valuable. Yeah, it's so fascinating. It's like taking this idea of, you know, like essentially mining, right? Seeing this stuff as resources and an urban mining, if you like, or, you know, and, and applying it in terms of thinking, well, where do these things exist? And and in a way, uh, you know, your question about how do we, you know, data's in the past and how do we play into the future? And I think, so we're doing this project on packaging and we've d- developed an open data standard for packaging data, really detailed information um, that helps people with EPR and plastics tax and all those sorts of things they're having to deal with now, but with an idea of really trying to understand the materials that are being used in packaging as materials so that once they become waste, we're not going, oh, I wonder what this is. I think it's a pet bottle. But instead being able to go, yeah, it is a pet bottle, but actually it's got a, you know, such and such a kind of lining in it, or it's got this kind of coating in it, or it's got this disruptor, or it's got this thing that actually is more valuable. Or, you know, we really need to get to a point where we're we're genuinely, you know, tracking, mapping, keeping the information about the stuff that we are making and selling and sharing and all of that with a view to understanding that once it becomes no longer useful in the way that it is, that we're able to then keep it at the highest value it can be and take it and use it in the best way possible. And and I just honestly, I don't see how we can have a circular economy without really understanding the materials that we're you know flowing through our economies as stuff and as waste. And And I think to me, that's what's exciting about data is it might be historic, but it gives you a vision about what's coming because especially when you're talking about materials and products that are coming onto the market, you know, imagine if you could actually tell people, well, these things are, you know, these new products are being developed, they're coming onto the market and their likely lifetime is X and then that they will likely be ending up in a MRF or in a recycling plant or whatever. And being able to give those local authorities, those waste management companies, all those people that kind of insight so that they could tweak what they're offering to meet the needs of the materials that are coming through. And I just, that to me is really exciting and and allows us to stop seeing this stuff as being, oh, it's a valuable thing. Oh, it's waste. And instead it's just all stuff that we need to, you know, it's all resources we need to value and treat better. And, and that to me is where we could potentially then really realize a circular economy. And it's great to see 
innovations coming on that actually enable that. Sally Beckin at the uh, UK KTN calls that molecular husbandry, looking after the atoms. I think it's just a great phrase for what we're looking at, you know, looking after the atoms. I think it's a great picture. And it's so true, you know, we have the periodic table in our hands and we let it drip through our fingers in our pursuit of weight because all the targets are weight-based. But going back to that point, Sophie, you know, if, if we can take the data from what we're having coming through and we can then inform the waste and the resources industry of what they're going to be dealing with in five years, that's great. But then we need to be working with the product designers and the trends analysts for the next five years. What are we going to be wearing, cooking in, what products are going to come through? So we can span this whole 10, 15 year period. At that point, I think we then get real innovation. Um, And you talked about both of those things. um, So thank you for that. Just looking forward to, to, you know, what's going to happen in the future and looking at a few hot topics. What, What in your opinion, and I'll go with you first, Sophie, what in your opinion are the hot topics or the pertinent issues that the sector is going to deal with and, and, and what opportunity do they bring? And can you illustrate your answer maybe with a few examples of the companies you're working with? Yeah, of course. So, I mean, I think, you know, this shift away from kind of waste tracking, although, you know, please let's have waste tracking. Um, but that shift away from that to kind of more materials tracking, I think is something that I think is a real hot topic and something that's really exciting. And I think, you know, Going back just to on your point there, Mark, is that what it allows, if you have that information about what happens to things once they're waste, then you can influence those designers and those, you know, manufacturers to make the best decisions about those and not combine stupid materials. They shouldn't do that, devalue the material later on in life or, you know. So I think all those sorts of things are really exciting. And I think going back to David's point earlier, that absolutely only works if you have really good cross-industry, cross-interdisciplinary um, you know, kind of collaboration and conversation and really sharing and understanding those problems so that you can get to the bottom of it and really fix those things at the source. I think that all those sort of legislative changes that we're seeing at the moment, although they are a headache and you know very difficult for everyone, are a really interesting driver of innovation because they kind of create new pain points and more pain points. And to me, you know, innovation is solving problems. And so actually... If you've got these new problems to solve, really thinking about how to solve them in the best possible way, not just from one particular perspective. So maybe, you know, not just from an environmental perspective, but a social perspective, a financial perspective, all of these things, I think really open up the door to a lot of new ways of doing things um, and can allow us to kind of find, you know, genuinely reimagine how we do this so that it's better and it's not just a tweak on, you know, previous ways of doing it. I'm trying to think which are the best examples. I mean, I'm seeing in terms of like construction stuff, there's some really interesting things coming out of people like ReLondon, where they're really trying to understand how to improve the kind of circular construction space and not just from a digital perspective, although that's part of it, but think about the practicalities and on the ground, kind of how that works, thinking about who you need to be in the room to do that and how to kind of create those conversations and build those coalitions. I think that's really interesting. I think the stuff around sort of flex collect that's happening around, you know, trying to research and understand how we might do flexible plastic collections and and working with local authorities and waste management companies and bringing all that together. I think that's really interesting. And just to blow our own trumpet again, you know, I think that the, the open 3P packaging standard that we're developing has been an incredible coming together of, you know, I can't remember what it is now, 150 something people from across the whole packaging ecosystem to really understand the problem and share with each other what the best way we might come to a a solution that actually works for everyone and that isn't good for just one part of the chain. And I think that to me should be the hot topic. How do we make solutions that work 
across the board, that they're not just a, a great bit for one part and just move the problem somewhere else. Find ways to collaborate, find ways to work together, because I think that's where the, the really imaginative, innovative stuff will come out of that, people bringing their minds together to figure it out. Always. I, I always say that um, the best ideas come at the intersections, but when, when one industry touches another, when one organisation touches another, and, and, it's, and it's, it's definitely the case because you can't see what needs solving until you can look a little bit into that organisation. David, for you, what are the major hot topics that you're seeing? What are the pressing issues that you're seeing at the moment? Yeah, I think probably the overarching biggest concern is just the fact that material consumption continues to go up um, and that waste produced in line keeps going up. You know, even with you know the significant work we've done around plastics here in the UK, plastic production continues to go up. We're still making more fossil-derived plastic than we have before, even with all the recycling targets that we've put in place Uh, that's a function of population growth it's a logarithmic trend so it gets worse year on year on year it's estimated that in the next 25 years we'll use more materials than we have in the entirety of human history to date i mean that's a pretty scary thought from a you know just a a fundamental utilization point of view and the only way i can see is turning a corner on that and having any sort of sustainable future in terms of you know supporting a growing population is to really adopt circular economy thinking and principles and the way we see waste as we've already discussed. And you know, to do that, we've got to, to completely think again about how we design materials for reuse, extend their life in flight and developing business models that support that. I'm working uh, with a business called Stuff for Life who partnered with the safety company. Most people will know Arco, who make a lot of you know safety workwear, hard hats, etc. They've developed a brilliant product uh, where Arco now are developing a product as a service model for safety. So rather than saying, oh, you know, I've got a thousand workers that want to buy a high, thousand high-vis jackets, they'll sell you safety for your workers. And they'll give you bins that, you know, once you've used it, you put it back in, they can launder it. But high-vis garments, again, you've got to know the problem. It's not simple. There's a lot of regulations around high-vis safety workwear because its primary role is to keep you safe. Uh, and so there's a limited number of times you can wash it. If it loses too much of its reflectivity, then it's not doing its designed purpose. And so Arco, you know, using this product as a service model, are able to sell their customers safety as a service, get materials back. But then when they reach the end of their useful life, because they're discolored or they're damaged, as you could imagine garments in, in that sort of utilization do, Partnered with Stuff for Life, they've developed a recycling solution. It's a non-mechanical recycling solution, again, because these garments are designed to not break down. They're designed to be chemically splash resistant. They're your classic plastic product. You know, then they don't break down easy. But because of that, they're good quality. The, the dyes and pigments in them are high value. And so they've developed a technology that will depolymerize, extract some of the value. The reflective microbeads, it can extract those so they can be reused, leaching dyes and recovering the base polymer, polyester fabric usually, or polyester cotton. And that can be battery manufactured, woven in the UK, and then close the loop back into product again in the UK. And that's the journey they're on at the moment, fully closing the loop in their circular fashion line. You know, that's enabled by a business model that because it's in flight longer, actually makes it a sustainable business model because garments last longer, so you're not wasting money just replacing stuff. And so the additional money it costs to fully recycle something actually partially gets absorbed by, you know, having it in flight longer. And it, it fully closes the loop. It means that you get that one thing you really need, which is safety for your workers, 
and you can give that responsibility almost away. It's a great service to be able to buy in, but it's a service which delivers circular sustainability with a significant impact on the carbon footprint. You know, even bearing in mind that recycling process that's in there. I'm really passionate, and that's why we've got the Circular Economy Innovation Center, CEREG, about closing that loop, technology. So I spend a lot of my time working with people across you know, all sorts of different sectors, looking at business models and innovations and technologies to really try and close loops. You know, and that's just a great example of one that we're able to close. We, we've got to be honest with ourselves about material consumption. And we've got to start thinking differently about how we do it. And for me, that's driven by business models and realized by emergent technologies. But the other area actually builds completely on what Sophie was saying, and it's, it's to do with digitalization. But there's a specific aspect of digitalization that I'm particularly motivated about at the moment because I think it's a now opportunity. There's a bill that just passed in Parliament called the Electronic Trade Documents Bill. And it's one of the things that you will read and, you know, just think this is the least interesting thing ever. Because what it says is you were already able to do trade documents on paper. Now you can do them on the computer. Game change. Well, it doesn't sound a game change, but it is. You know, actually, many of the ways we've been doing trade have been around since the Napoleonic era. You want to land a, a cargo container, you have to fly a plane above in front of it to make sure that the paperwork gets there first, otherwise it can't dock. It's, you know, mad stuff like that. But that's not really what the innovation, you know, with the Electronic Trade Documents Bill does. But what it does is it means that all these different, you know, just to, to import something, there's about 64 documents that you need to process, uh, many of which are done by email and, and paper-based. The fact that we can digitalize that means that we can start to link in all sorts of other things. So traceability, accountability, you look at the battery passports that the EU are developing. This is an incredible opportunity for us to build in some of the data businesses have been developing into actually how we do business, how we trade, how we sell things, and to drive people to more sustainable practices, not just moving stuff about. Uh, we see that already, like I said already, in the critical minerals sector. We've got a project in the critical minerals sector with the digital supply chain hub, but we've also got this project uh, called Progress with the Center for International Digital Trade, which is all about how you're confident that these goods moving around are what they say they are, you know, in this vision to move towards a point where I can settle both the, you know, the legal impacts of shipping stuff in, the financial impacts, the regulatory impacts, the sustainability impacts, resolve those all together and provide a, an accountability and a traceability, but that doesn't necessarily mean having to share all your data and outing your formula and everything like that, that allows people to share trust across platforms in an interoperable way. And I, for me, this opportunity, you know, the UK is the first G20 country to have this sort of um, legislation. There is a key opportunity for us right now to build in circular economy thinking and principles into this legislation so that when it gets cascaded out into other countries, they learn from what we're doing as it becomes the norm when we start to explore the opportunities of those free trade corridors we've set up with other nations. These principles of circularity are built into the legislation and it's easier to do it right than it is to do it wrong. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree with you more. And we've got to make the good way, the easy way and the, and the bad way, the hard way. It's great to hear that is. And just to wrap up, for each of you, what would be your key takeaway on the subject? 
you'd like to leave our audience with? I'll go to you first, Sophie. So, yeah, two two things, if I may. We call that passive compliance. Make the right thing to do the easiest thing to do. And I think you can apply that to anything, not just compliance, right? And I think that's what we should be doing when we're designing these systems is what do we want people to do? How do we make it? That's the thing that they're likely to do, not that they have to jump through hoops or you have to persuade them that they should be good people and do, you know, more recycling or whatever, but actually just make it easy. And the other thing, again, building on that digitalization piece, I think is we're really seeing that people are thinking of data as a, as a, in a linear economy way as well. And what we're kind of really excited about at the moment is this idea of a kind of a circular economy for data. So when you are designing new systems or when you are putting in new new technology into your business or, you know, thinking about how to digitalize your processes, think about data as a renewable resource. Think about how you could use that piece of data in a multitude of different ways and not just it being for one particular purpose. So that's why, you know, for us thinking about the packaging data, I'm just obsessed with this at the moment. So, you know, it's not just for EPR. It's not just for plastic packaging tax. It's not just for your plastics patch reporting. It is valuable data about your packaging that you could use for anything you wanted. You know, do you need to figure out what so it turns out a chemical, we're not allowed to use that anymore. You know, where where's that in my supply chain? You could use it for that. You want to find out your footprinting, you can use it for that. Think about data like that. And, and you know, that about the trade documents, that's a perfect example of actually, if you're in the process of digitalizing a system like that, think about what useful data you could embed into that that then allows other things to be linked to it and, and creates this really rich tapestry of information that allows us to make much better decisions in a you know huge multitude of different ways so it's the same with the sort of legislative changes i think see them as an opportunity to reimagine how to do this and build in better systems where we're gathering better data and we're linking things together and we're thinking about interoperability and cooperation and collaboration and you know not having these sort of monolithic systems that have to you know that are just for one purpose or trying to do everything but instead how we create a kind of an ecosystem of solutions that talk to each other and that share and, you know, kind of value data across the board rather than it being in this kind of siloed, hoarded kind of way where it's used in one particular, you know, people think they need to keep it for themselves. And that's not about saying everything should be published openly, but there's so much more value to data when it is shared with people that can value it too and that you can build relationships out of it and build more insights out of sharing your knowledge together and and linking it. And I think... That's where we need to be moving to is thinking of things like that rather than the kind of old school way of thinking about data and and that kind of linear way. I'm with you all the way. We, we hold on to data thinking it's unique and ours and no one else's can be trusted. And we've actually all got the same data or we've all got overlapping data or we've all got data that is um, uh, that is worth sharing. Uh, David, key takeaway from you. Yeah, I mean, I suppose, you know, look across the summary of the examples I've given, you know, we've looked at digital formulation, we've looked at cross-border free trade agreements, we've looked at, you know, the, the chemistry of how you bind these things together, new business models. For me, it comes back to this this first point about it being multidisciplinary. Um, I just think that the issues we face now aren't simple ones. They're increasingly complex. They're increasingly multidimensional, multinational, multi-stakeholder. Uh, and only when we look to build teams working with bodies like CIWM who can convene those relevant parties and who really understand some of the challenges can we develop truly interoperable solutions uh, between all those different parts and, and to create ultimately a truly sustainable materials future. When we think about waste, when we think about resources, we maybe don't think about people like Sophie and David. And 
And I think that is only ever going to make, you're only ever going to make the sector work better and do greater things and to be an amplifier for innovation, change and growth. I mean, more profit from the same resources. That has to be the way that we do things. And there's a whole suite of tools available on the CIWM uh, website and leading the way to a world beyond waste has a, a range of things that you can get involved with. So thank you for listening and join us again next time for the next episode. Thank you. Thanks once again to the sponsors of this episode, Xworks Tech, Recycleye, and Q Technology and Circular Fuels. You can read, watch, and learn more about their work and about the full Leading the Way to a World Beyond Waste digital series by going to worldbeyondwaste.ciwm.co.uk. And don't forget to visit contentwithpurpose.co.uk or find us on socials to check out more of our podcast collaborations. Mm-hmm.